The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. For the past six days, I have had the privilege of hanging with 16 incredible students and 14 incredible family faculty members at Main Street Vegan Academy. I don't think it occurred to me before this that a school with an almost one-to-one faculty-to-student ratio is a remarkable thing. And among the students this time were 14 bright and committed adults and a couple of remarkable young people. Ishat Jain is a 16-year-old professional tennis player from New Delhi, India, who thought that he could help animals most by becoming a well-known athlete, but he decided that that's uncertain and takes a lot of time, so he plans to go back to New Delhi and start a vegan athletic shoe company, and his family is totally behind that, so we wish him great success, and I know we all want the shoes. Now, Ishat would be the youngest graduate of Main Street Vegan Academy ever certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator, except... We were also joined in this class by Vegan Evan, president of Animal Hero Kids. If you don't follow Vegan Evan online already, treat yourself to the wise videos of this nine-year-old activist who came to the academy with his mom, Shannon Blair. The course, live and in person here in New York City, was magical, but it's like that every time. If you'd like to know more, do visit us at MainStreetVegan.net and click on Academy. Hey, everybody, I am Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan program. And today's guests, well, you know, I think we can call them animal hero adults. I met this amazing couple speaking at the Winnipeg Manitoba Veg Fest a while back. And you know what? They're very responsible for putting that on too. My guests are veterinarian Jonas Watson and his veterinary nurse practitioner partner, Brittany Semeniuk. And if I have said that wrong, you can correct me. They devote every waking moment of their lives to providing compassionate veterinary care to animals in need across the globe. 
from rehabilitating moon bears in Vietnam to sterilizing street dogs in Madagascar to rescuing spiny lobsters in Mexico to stabilizing dogs from polar bear attacks in Canada's north. Jonas and Brittany have witnessed firsthand the very best and worst of humanity's complex yet often exploitative relationship with animals. Welcome, Brittany and Jonas. Thank you for having us. Hi. Well, when I met you in Winnipeg, and I was lucky enough to sit next to you, Brittany, at the big dinner that you had for the speakers, thank you so much. And you just told one or two of these stories, and it was like, we had to find a way to get them on the show like yesterday because this is utterly fascinating. And I think so many of us, we might have a veterinarian that we appreciate for what he or she does for our companion animals, but they're almost always not vegan. They just don't even seem to, to want to be open to that. So you're so unique in the profession and I'm so excited to hear from you. So let us start from the very beginning, a very good place to start. How did you guys meet? <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Um, Jonas and I actually first met when we were working together at um, a veterinary clinic here in Winnipeg in 2009. Um, and then we, I went off to do some traveling and whatnot. And then we met up again around 2012 at a different veterinary clinic. Um, and it was just through working together where we realized we shared a lot of the same passions, the same ethics and, and viewpoints on a lot of different issues. Um, and he's also just a really funny person, and we just hit it off really well, and more or less, the rest is history. More or were, less, yeah. Uh, were you already vegan by then? Um, I was almost vegan. I became vegan in 2013, so just right before then. And were you, Jonas, or did she convert you? Uh, <laughs> no, there was... I guess it was sort of a joint thing. It was probably around the same time for me too. I think we were most we were pretty much mostly uh, living that way at that time, and uh, I think we probably supported each other at that time. And Jonas was actually uh, he's been vegetarian since he was probably about eight years old. You know, at yeah. a time where it was really not popular for a young boy to be a vegetarian. So. Yeah. So. Why aren't there more vegetarian and vegan veterinarians? There's a lovely Israeli veterinarian in, in the film that I'm part of, um, Prepare for Compassion, and she's tried mm -hmm. to get a Thomas Jackson, who made that film, to make one called Please Don't Eat Your Patients. Yes. <laughs> About, you know, it, for, for those of us on the outside of the profession, we're just baffled. Can you fill us in? Well, I think that the profession, you know, which has been around for hundreds of years and sort of modern veterinary medicine goes back close to 300 years. It's so intrinsically connected to agriculture and the raising of animals, livestock for um, human use. And for that reason, um, the people that go into the profession um, and the um, people that uh, really use veterinarians are to a large extent producers of, of uh, products um, and food. And so uh, there's just a mindset difference in uh, veterinary, veterinary medicine about 
um, animals. And that, that is still the case today, though things have changed to a large extent. It's becoming more sort of companion animal centric. Um, but still, veterinary colleges are largely supported by governments for the purpose of uh, providing a secure, a secure uh, food source, uh, food supply. And so things are changing a little bit slowly, but veterinary students are coming from farm backgrounds and uh, going into practice in rural areas where they're helping uh, to support you know, industries to a large extent. So what's it like for somebody like you to go through the process of veterinary school? Yeah, it's very, um, it can be kind of alienating, I have to say. I mean, a lot, I went through school, I graduated in 2006, and um, uh, things have changed a lot even since then. Things have gotten more progressive even since then. But yeah, we were asked to do things that really did not sit well with me. And I had to experience things and see things that really went up against um, my values as a person that were pretty ingrained in me from a very young age. And it can be very hard. You know, you're a person in your early 20s and you're trying to get through this um, rigorous uh, education and kind of trying not to rock the boat too much. And uh, you... And you, you know, you you do some things, and some of which doesn't totally feel right. Fortunately, though, you know, there were a very small number of very progressive veterinary students, most of which, most of whom were women, who had the courage to stand up and sort of say, you know, we want to, we don't want to be a part of this or that, you know, pr procedure or lab or whatever it might be. And that kind of pressure helped the, uh, helped the higher ups at, 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 at my college to make certain changes and to cut certain things out of the curriculum that were really kind of becoming harder and harder to justify. So, so progress is being made, but yeah, it could be very challenging. What I would say is that it really, my experiences there only validated the feelings I had inside me. There was nothing about veterinary medicine and that education that made me think, oh, huh, well, maybe this or that is sort of okay. It all sort of confirmed for me what I kind of felt, which was that, you know, we don't really need to be using animals in this way. And really my interest in veterinary medicine was as it pertained to helping the animals who are our companions. So when you are a veterinary physician or a veterinary nurse, as, as you are, Brittany, Who's the patient? Is it the animal or is it the human, people like to say, owner? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that um, in a lot of the work that Jonas and I do, and for any kind of veterinary professional, um, it's not so black and white into just treating the animal. There's a lot of um, human health that kind of revolves around what we do. It, for instance, when we go and travel ab abroad and we do these sterilization clinics, um, or even if we do sterilization clinics here within Manitoba in very remote northern communities, um, we're also providing a service to, to the people. We're providing you know, proper pet education. We're bringing um, vaccines to the pets, which serves as a human health safety um, 
issue where we're providing rabies vaccines, so it's also safe for the humans to interact with, with these dogs and not worry about contracting the rabies virus. Um, and it's also just acknowledging that people can have as strong of a bond with their with their pets as they can with any human out there. So um, that's something that we always try to be mindful of and we try to to approach with, with deep respect. Yeah, there's this notion, this concept now called One Health and uh, a spin-off of that is is a concept called One Welfare, which is this, this idea that we should be taking an integrative and kind of a collaborative approach to the work that we do as healthcare professionals that incorporates the work of um, human healthcare professionals and social workers and other kinds of people um, to help to help not only improve animal health and welfare, but to help improve the the bond between the people and the animals, those people who depend so much on that relationship. Um, and, and we know that when people um, have have that um, bond with a pet, it, it gives them often um, a sense of something something worthwhile and maybe validates their own decisions about how they take care of themselves too. So, so, so it is very much the case that you, know, you a, a successful veterinary professional cannot simply be very adept with working with animals. They really do have to be able to uh, connect with and communicate well with the people who often depend on those, on those animals. So what happens if somebody comes to you and say wants to have a cat declawed, which I know has been outlawed in, in many places. I don't know about Manitoba, but if it were legal there and someone is saying it's declawed or off to the animal shelter, what does a veterinarian do with that? Well, you know, I think at the end of the day, you have to look inward and decide what procedures you as a medical professional are comfortable doing. You have to sort of decide what you think is right and what you think is wrong. And there are a minority of veterinarians these days who might look at that particular procedure and may in their own mind be able to justify that uh, procedure, a procedure like decline, and may, may feel that there's nothing really wrong with it. And so those folks may advertise that service. Um, I myself have a objection to that procedure, slowly but surely. It's been banned across Canada, and I'm actually the president of our provincial veterinary medical association, and one of the first orders of business was to move ahead with implementing a ban on declawing here in Manitoba, which we successfully did last May, so you can't actually declaw a cat here. But yeah, there are ethical quandaries like that where, where you as a professional have to navigate that with people. You try to educate them as best as possible. You weigh out all of these options. But at the end of the day, if you know, you, you have to do what you can live with. This this job can be very emotionally taxing and we often suffer from not just compassion fatigue, but sort of a decision making fatigue. And so we have to sort of um, live by our own moral code. And if we say we don't want to do procedure X, Y, or Z, um, the people can take their pet and perhaps find some other place that will do it. Hopefully, the hope is that, you know, as a culture shifts, and, and certainly we're seeing this in Canada, procedures like elective surgical procedures that have negative long-term consequences like decline are becoming uh, less less popular. Oh, Brittany... 
what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I agree with what Jonas is saying completely. At the end of the day, um, it's important for, for all veterinary professionals to understand, especially those starting out, that um, they never have to feel as though their hands are tied and they're forced into a decision. Um, it's okay to question things. It's okay to stand up for yourself. And it's okay to make a decision that um, might be largely unpopular by society's standards. And I've experienced a lot of that just within my own line of work and my own career, um, where you do see questionable things or you see questionable decisions being made and you don't have to go along with it. It's okay to, to act in the manner that you feel is right within your heart. And that's something that I just try to live by every day. Luckily, as Jonah said, society is changing and, and uh, many um, fields in animal welfare are becoming more and more progressive. And it's very, it's very heartwarming to, to see that. It is indeed, and I think this attitude and, and acting on it is what got Jonas a really prestigious award uh, in 2019, so uh, brag about that, or maybe your wife would rather brag about it, but tell <laughs> oh, us yeah, what I'll, happened. I'll let her, I'll let Brittany brag about it. Okay, well, you can let me know if I miss anything out. How about that? Mm -hmm. um, so in 2019, Jonas was one of only six recipients globally, so throughout the entire world, who was um, a recipient of the World Veterinary Association's uh, Humane Animal Welfare Awards, which essentially recognizes all of the, the hard work that he's done throughout his whole career. It's not an exaggeration when we say that we devote every waking second to animal welfare. So um, he does a lot of work with marginalized and homeless people and their pets, providing free veterinary care. Um, he does a lot of work in the remote reserves and remote northern communities in Manitoba, as well as his work um, abroad, where we've gone off and done sterilization clinics in places like Madagascar, which really have no uh, level of, of veterinary care in, in most forms. Um, so to, to see all of that hard work, which we do just because we are passionate about this, we do, we do this because we're trying to, to bring a positive change into this world. But to see it kind of recognized by such an elite organization, um, for me, just kind of helped to verify, you know, that that we're doing the right thing. But Jonas is definitely the one to talk more about what it's like to to be honored with that. Well, it, yeah, it was a very nice uh, recognition, and um, the, this this work can be um, draining and exhausting, and so and and sometimes. I mean, it's rewarding in and of itself, but sometimes it can be a little bit thankless, and uh, that kind of validation was very nice. Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations. It's very yeah. special. So tell us a little bit about your family. After the break, we'll get into Madagascar and all these things you do in remote areas, but uh, you have uh, quite a few animals. I believe one is an adorable human. Yeah. So uh, yeah. tell us about your household. Um, so it fluctuates through the years we've had probably everything you can imagine but um right now we have we we had three dogs one just recently passed away so now we're down to two dogs we have a rescue cat both dogs are rescues by the way so one we actually brought over from thailand she was going to be killed for meat for the dog meat trade in asia 
um, and I can get into that a bit later, but um, so she was a rescue from Thailand that we brought over. Um, our other dog, Carlin, is a rescue from a puppy mill here within Manitoba. Um, we have a rescued street cat. We have a giant catfish that lives in a giant tank in our living room. That's over 20 years old. Um, and we, oh, and we have a rabbit. We have a rabbit that we found on the side of the road, our little rescue rabbit. Um, and then we threw a toddler into the mix and we have a two and a half year old little girl. Um, and when she was actually born, we had more than that. We had 10 rescue mice living in our house as well, which is just ridiculous. But um, our house is pretty full. So she's, the, the good thing is she's very used to animals. She's not phased by, by anything. That makes me so sad. I, I have this little 20-pound schnoodle, schnauzer poodle, sweetest dog ever, but so many children are afraid. Yeah. And I think somebody had to tell them to be afraid. It's sad. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because just on that note, um, we're obviously raising her vegan and to you know, understand our morals and ethics and things like that and our points of view. So... So right now she doesn't really understand that it's even an option to eat a chicken. So when we go to, there's a local farm sanctuary here in Manitoba, Kismet Creek Farm, little shout out. Um, <laughs> when we go to places like that um, and she, she bonds with the cows and the chickens and things, and then I drive past um, a fast food restaurant that might have a picture of a chicken, she gets really excited because she thinks that there's chickens to play with in there. Like it's not even fathomable to her right now that you eat these animals and I just like I see her innocence and it just it makes me want to cry because she just she has no idea of of some of the atrocities that are going on in this world and it's very beautiful it is indeed I wish it could last forever for mm -hmm. all children so tell us you you've um, alluded several times to northern Manitoba and, and for those of us listening in the U.S., in Europe, other parts of the world, tell us about Canada. Canada is such a huge country, but my understanding is that so much of it is very northern and, and sparsely populated and just something that I think a lot of us aren't used to. So tell us what it's like up there in general and for animals. Mm -hmm. Well, the more north you go in Canada, the harder life is, the colder it is, and the fewer resources that are available to you. So in the southern part of the country, you know, we are in Winnipeg, which is sort of right on top of North Dakota. Um, we're, we're, we're cold, but we're not as cold as, you know, at, at the top of, of the country. And we're, we live in a city which has, you know, many, many resources available to us. And life is relatively easy. But when you get to far-flung and remote parts, parts that don't have accessible roads, parts that you, you, know, you need to fly in on a small airplane to access, the people that live there, especially uh, indigenous for, for First Nations communities that live sort of scattered throughout Northern Canada, they really do not have a lot of resources. Many of these people are, you know, to some extent living off of the land. Um, they do have um, some resources, but it, it, it's fairly limited. And over the course of, you know, decades of reconciliation, you know, these communities have been set up on reserves throughout the country, many of which have been underserved in a lot of ways, such that, you know, certain communities may not have easy access to running water or very reliable infrastructure or very high quality education. 
So life in general for these people is very difficult. And a lot of it is sort of traces back to systemic racism. And that's not an, that's not a Canada thing that we see that kind of thing happen all over the world. And of course the animals really are the ones that have it the worst. Um, the people have it bad enough, but the dogs and um, it's largely dogs, but other companion animals that live alongside these folks, they, in some ways they live sort of wilder lives you know, there aren't leash laws. There aren't a lot of bylaws that restrict them, but as such, they you know, are at the mercy of conflicts with wildlife or being hit by vehicles or freezing to death. Uh, there's not easy access to veterinary care. So these dogs are not vaccinated. They die of infectious disease very easily. Many of them are carrying parasite burdens. Life can be very, very hard. And the cold climate really doesn't help. So, you know, puppies that might be born in the middle of the winter, they will often perish because, you know, they're, they, it's, it's just very cold. What we have made it a priority to do using the sort of unique skill set that a, a veterinarian and veterinary technologists have is to go to these communities and offer as much as we can in terms of veterinary care to to um, help improve the quality of their lives, help uh, control the overpopulation problem, help ensure that basic um, immunizable diseases have been addressed so that animals aren't dying of parvovirus and distemper um, and rabies, and uh, just trying to make life a little bit easier for the dogs. In so doing, I think we're also helping the um, people who really do care about them, but simply don't have the resources to uh, provide them with the kind of care that they need. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I see wherever I go that the harder life is for humans, the harder life is for animals. Very much so. Being the dominant species, it's kind of whatever's going on with us tends to uh, spread out. So I know sometimes people become vegan and they say, but I'm a human rights activist, or I, I work, you know, with human trafficking, and now I want to do animal rights. But it's all so connected. I it's think any time that yeah. that uh, we can help uh, humans, that's going to ripple out to animals as well. So I want everybody to know this lovely couple will be with us through the entire show. We're coming up to our break, so I want you to get the website, which is WinnipegVegFest.ca. And it's a dandy veg fest. Oh, my gosh. It's so well done, so professionally done, so put together. I just have the best, best time there. Uh, and you can also find out about Dr. Watson's work on Facebook at Jonas Watson. And find them both and lots of pictures on Instagram at street.vets. Street.vets. And we will be back after these messages with more with Dr. Jonas Watson and the really committed, dedicated, and delightful Brittany Semeniuk. Stay with us. Practical Spirituality positive messages. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. 
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, listeners. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for being on board for this fascinating conversation about the amazing beings with whom we share this planet. Quick announcements. The blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net is from Main Street Vegan Academy graduate Sharon Nazarian, who heads up BigCityVegan.com, a site well worth visiting itself. And in her blog post for us this week, she shares four really unique ideas for toast. (laughs) Come on, you know you love it. Toast is very comforting. Toast and hot soup in the winter. That sounds good to me. And also, just a look ahead to keep a lookout for the Vegan Business Rebellion Online Summit. It's not posted yet, so this is some insider information. But if you have a vegan business or if you even have an embryonic idea for a vegan business, do plan on listening in early December. I am part of that. Stephanie Redcross of Vegan Mainstream. Katrina Fox of Vegan Business Media. She's a former Forbes contributor. And Margot Curry of The World's Best Deodorant. We are some women in vegan business who believe vegan business is going to save the world, and we think yours can help save it too. So please be part of that. The posting should be up by late October, and I will keep you updated every single week. So let's get back to this wonderful conversation with Dr. Jonas Watson. Find him on Facebook, Jonas Watson, and his partner in life and animal-saving work, Brittany Semeniuk, a veterinary nurse, and you'll find them both on Instagram at street.vets. So that is utterly fascinating about Northern Canada. That's a place that has always held intrigue for me. And yet you don't just stay close to home. Tell us about some of these far-flung places where you've gone to do great things for animals. Um, So we've had um, a few opportunities to travel abroad and bring our skills abroad. So um, I, a few years ago, I actually lived and worked in Vietnam, in northern Vietnam, um, because I was working for an organization called Animals Asia. And it's an incredible organization that uh, really revolves around its main focus of ending the bear bile trade in China and Vietnam. Um, And without going into too many details, bear bile is harvested from the bears. They're kept in very tiny metal wire cages their entire lives. So uh, part of my work for that organization was um, helping to rescue the bears, bringing them back to our our sanctuary and providing them with uh, medical care, um, different sort of rehabilitation methods, and really just kind of seeing these bears get to have a second chance at life and flourish. And, and um, it was, I was very happy to be a part of that. Um, The one downside to obviously working in a country where animal welfare is not really um, on the agenda was that we were living and working right in the middle of the dog meat trade. It was quite rampant where we were staying. So Although I was treating a lot of the street dogs and and helping with their sterilizations and getting them um, taken care of, a lot of the times they would just be stolen the next day and and killed for meat. And that was something that um, 
it, it, it weighs heavily on me. And I even had two little puppies of my own that I kind of adopted while I was there that got stolen. And um, it's something that's going to haunt me for the rest of my life to, to have experienced that. And I mean, it's important to acknowledge that these types of things are happening across the globe. Um, but it was definitely, it definitely had its share of, of, of questionable and just heart-wrenching moments um, living and working out there. So tell me what it's like. I mean, I have seen um, pictures, videos of, of the bile bears, and so many of us, we just don't want to look. We don't want to look at the pictures. We don't want to look at the films. Mm-hmm. You actually saw it. How... What do you do? You know, you're so kind, you're so sensitive, and yet somehow you're able to override that and go into the horror and help. Um, I mean, for situations like that, um, I, I did find that a lot of the times, you know, talking to Jonas back here in Canada, having someone to talk to about all of this who who understands and has seen um certain horrors themselves really, really kind of helped to stabilize me. But um, at the end of the day, it sounds so cliche, but you have to kind of remind yourself that you're there to make a difference. And, and without you, these animals would go on to continue to being exploited. And, and you really just have to cling on to the positive moments. So although I saw many, many terrible things, um, I really try and keep my focus on on the beautiful moments when we're releasing a bear onto grass for the for, for the first time or or seeing you know certain dogs getting better and or teaching owners how to properly care for their dogs you really have to ensure that you're you're focusing on on the good moments and the progress mm. that's being made i think one of the most hopeful uh, videos i have seen comes from animal asia and it's these bears who have just had such horrible, horrible lives because bears live a long time. They live into their 30s. Is that correct? Yeah, they can. They supposed to, and these bears, you know, some of them had been in captivity over 20 years and they were out playing. And yeah. Animals Asia does such a great job. They have these wonderful playgrounds for the bears. So that's another group to check out. So let's let's talk about the whole dog meat industry, and this is certainly something uh, I'm happy for you both to weigh in on. A lot of people, you know, it's kind of controversial. A lot of vegans say, why fight dog meat? Because we eat pigs and cows. Just weigh in on that. Where do you come yeah. from? Because you've seen it up close and personal. Yeah, West, there are a lot of people in Western countries that like to say that, you know, we eat cows, they eat dogs, it's their culture, it's their tradition. And um, to that sort of mindset, I always say to people, um, yeah, exactly. You shouldn't eat anything. If you don't want to feel hip- hypocritical, um, cows are just as sentient as dogs are. They're all beautiful amazing creatures, we shouldn't be eating any of them, whether it's a dog or a pig or a chicken or a cow. Um, I think what a lot of people also don't understand about the dog meat trade is that it's nothing like it historically used to be, where it was just a matter of eating um, dogs here and there to survive. Um, It's very much now a large multi-million dollar organization, you know, built upon the suffering of animals. And it's, there's a, it's, it's, 
a big black market industry where pets are getting stolen, street dogs are getting stolen, um, they're tortured and they're killed. And um, a lot of um, pushback that I would say that people from North America say, you know, we have our own dogs that have their own problems, we should be focusing on our dogs. And again, you can care about both. I do work for dog rescues here within Manitoba to help our northern dogs, but I'm an I'm an also a huge advocate about ending the dog meat trade. You can care about both issues, um, and a lot of times the dogs abroad, they don't have any sort of rescue or organization trying to help them or vouch for them. Um, and I've always my own personal philosophy that I've always lived by is if you have the opportunity to help an animal, if you come across an animal or a human that needs your help, then you should just be obligated to help them because for the every animal that you help, there are thousands to millions that will never receive that help. So that's just something that I try to keep in mind. It doesn't mm. matter where the animal is or where the human is or who they are. Um, if they need help, then we should help them. Indeed. And how about adopting from the dog meat trade? I know when I was in Winnipeg, you talked about your rescue dog. Somebody else at the table had a dog rescued from the dog meat trade. I don't think I'd ever heard of that before. Yeah, so um, it it's not very common, but it, you can do it. I Our dog, Karma, we rescued through Soy Dog International, which is one of the largest dog um, rescues and organizations in Asia. And... I mean, it's not without its difficulties. We brought back our dog who now has blossomed into an amazing, loving, beautiful dog. But when we brought her back, she had severe PTSD and she was not trusting of humans. So um, I feel like the majority of households within Western countries, they want to adopt, you know, the playful, happy puppy. And they don't really want to take in a dog that has psychological problems or has seen a lot of trauma in their lives because they are a lot of they are a lot of hard work. Um, so what we see happening is there is ultimately just nowhere for these dogs to go. You know, they might be rescued off of a meat truck in Asia, but then no one is wanting to adopt them. And they're kind of just stuck in limbo because people aren't prepared to take them on um, or people don't fully understand how to how to properly coexist with a dog that has behavioral problems. So um we, because we are in this situation where we understand animal behavior and we have this experience, I just felt like it was kind of, again, my obligation to take on more of a project dog because we know that we can give her, you know, a proper home and we can give her refuge to live out her days in a safe environment. And that was really important to me. I'm sure Jonas has some joke or something about I have no, I have no. <laughs> about the first few months of having karma well, here and she just growled at him well but. yeah that's true for the first that's true I, I would just stress <laughs> that these kinds of dogs are not for everyone and you know if a family is inclined to get a dog and wants one that they that, you know that is not going to be very burdensome for them you know they should get the right dog it's very important for pet owners to get the right pet for them yeah. so, so these kinds of dogs are not for everyone but no. that is the case that in the first six weeks or so um karma would just sort of stand on our bed and growl at me and really not let me go enter the bedroom and so i got comfortable sleeping on the couch yeah. until she began sort of urinating on the couch every day for about okay. a week or so so she, it, it was a work in progress but the progress has been made and she's a love you. yeah and she's a great dog i love her very very much but jonas made a good point it is important to to note that we do see the flip side of that we see owners all the time that take on certain breeds or rescue dogs and they are just not equipped 
to handle and provide the dog with what they need. And that's just as heartbreaking because it's not, it's not the, for the dog's lack of trying, it's the owners that really have to understand how to provide for these dogs and, and their problems and kind of work with them. And, and we see that a lot in veterinary medicine. So what does someone do who maybe hasn't had a dog since they were a child and their mom took care of it and they go into the shelter and basically I think most people say that one's cute. What should they really be looking for and what kind of homework should they do before they even go to the shelter? Well, it's useful, I think, to research dog breeds a little bit so that you have some sense of what you're getting into, um, even if the breed that you're interested in may show up as a uh, as only part of a mix that you find at a shelter. And I think even more important than that is to not treat the purchase of a pet like the purchase of a t-shirt at the mall. You really have to go and spend some time and maybe devote weeks and weeks to going back to the shelter over and over again until you find a dog that seems like a good match for you, the right age the right temperament, the right hair coat type that's not going to upset your allergies or whatever the case may be. You really do have to sort of try to spend some time and and really only take on a dog with uh, challenges or problems if you are prepared to put in the work that it will take to make that dog a, um, a, a civilized member of um, society. Because otherwise... You know, you're setting yourself up for some degree of failure and and a, a relationship that will be strained. And I don't think that's what most people are looking for when they are looking for a pet. They're looking for a, a long, loving relationship. And so finding the right match, you know, picking a pet is very much like picking a life partner. You have to make sure that you're finding the right, the right um, one for you. Great advice. So, Brittany, you sit on the board of directors for a children's home in Ethiopia, flying in the face of, oh, you animal people, you only care about animals. How did you get involved with a children's home in Ethiopia? Um, so there is a woman locally um, that runs an Ethiopian restaurant here um, within our city. And I just started going to the restaurant because I loved her food. But then as I got to know her, um, I found out that she um, is just a beautiful, beautiful soul. And she, out of the goodness of her heart, takes her restaurant earnings and takes them back to Ethiopia with her, where she's established this children's home for 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 kids that, you know, need um, education and, and clothes and things like that. And, and she was just doing this all herself. So, um, myself and a few other volunteers, we, we kind of got a board established to, to help her out. And just to show how kind of everything is connected. One of the ways that, um, in recent years, I've tried to really help her with, with her fundraising is that, uh, we've made her a staple at Winnipeg Veg Fest. So she was actually at our veg fest. And I had she, her food. She has <laughs> she has a table um, at veg fest every year, and it she sells out every single year because people just love her food. And that that one event helps her to raise thousands and thousands of dollars that she gets to take back to the children's home. So, I mean, it's just an example. When you open your heart to one cause or one issue. Um, you really open your heart to all sorts of different issues because, you know, for me at least, I care about children just as much as I care about animals. It's all connected to me. Um, 
compassion isn't something that really ends with any species with me. It's all related, and that includes humans. Um, as much as they can really depress you and bring you down, um, there are a lot of people out there that are trying to do the right thing. And so it's it's just a no-brainer for me to to help someone that that has that same viewpoint as me. What a beautiful attitude. So while we are traveling the world, Madagascar, that mm-hmm. sounds so exotic. So <laughs> Jonas, what was it like being the vet in Madagascar? Yeah, that was quite a project that's certainly going to go down as one of the highlights of my life. Probably I, I came across a, a very small nonprofit organization called the Mad Dog Initiative, which was run by wildlife biologists who were really trying to study the role that domestic dogs, pet dogs, and sort of stray dogs were having on the endangered species in Madagascar, especially lemurs. Everything in Madagascar is virtually uh, on the brink of extinction, from the chameleons to the lemurs to fusa and other species that are there. And so they wanted to kind of study how um, dogs might be infringing on wild territories or um, preying upon these animals. And they were looking for a veterinarian. As an adjunct to this research, they were looking for a veterinarian to help run a spay and neuter clinic there with a few local veterinarians, um, that you know, Malagasy veterinarians who'd studied at the University of Antananarivo. So myself and Brittany and a couple other uh, vet professionals from Canada traveled uh, to rural Madagascar um, and set up tents outside um, Ranamafana National Park, which is sort of a Jurassic Park-like research center in the middle of nowhere. And we began doing this very guerrilla-style spay and neuter stuff with um, community dogs, many of which were sort of owned or loosely owned. And uh, our, our, our Malagasy vets there could speak the language and, language and were able to sort of, you know, coerce or, or convince pet owners to have their animals vaccinated, dewormed, spayed and neutered. I don't, I'm not sure all the locals really understood what we were doing. I think they thought we were wizards maybe because mm-hmm, I think they mm-hmm. kind of had the sense that we were killing their animals and bringing them back to life. They really didn't know what we were doing, but they really bought into the premise that they could now not, you know, their animals would be healthier, they wouldn't catch diseases, they wouldn't be rampantly breeding. And over the course of about six weeks, in very, very uh, rugged terrain, we uh, altered um, about 100 dogs and cats. And uh, that was very, very satisfying. And one of the really nice pieces about it is that we connected with a, a Malagasy vet there who had graduated from veterinary school in Madagascar. But really, veterinary school in Madagascar is not anything like a a Western education. Everything she knew about surgery, she'd learned from watching YouTube videos. So she really had no hands-on experience and really her education was pretty spotty. But I could see that she really had potential. And so we trained her on the spot. I really kind of taught her a lot of techniques. And by the end of the project, I got together with the other uh, leaders on on this project and said, you know, this veterinarian, Siki, she would really benefit from further training. And we actually, for the first time in her life, put her on an airplane and flew her to Canada where she sort of interned with us in Winnipeg in the middle of February in the (laughs) snow. I mean, she'd never even virtually been to the airport and now she was suddenly touching down in uh, minus 30 degrees Celsius weather in Canada. Mm -hmm. 
And so it was quite a, uh, a shock to her, to her system in a lot of ways. But she got a lot of uh, very solid training here with, between myself and a bunch of my colleagues here. And we were able to send her back to Madagascar. And the following summer, she led the project herself without any supervision. And now she is the one training other Malagasy vets, which is very, very important um, in these initiatives, is to, to leave something with the communities where they can continue on these sorts of projects. Wow. <laughs> what a story. <laughs> so let, let's come back to home. People in Canada, the U.S., Europe, Australia, what do we look for in a vet? How, how do you do some really good vet shopping? Well, I think, you know, you need to find a vet with whom you feel like you have a very comfortable rapport, someone who largely shares the same values as you, someone who will listen someone who will really take the time to kind of hear your concerns and not sort of rush you out the door. You know, it's probably worth, I find many of my new clients are coming from referrals from other people. So it's probably worth talking to friends and seeing, uh, you know, who, who, who they might recommend. You really do need someone who is going to um, be on the same level in terms of their degree of compassion and in terms of, their values as you, because, you know, it's very easy to, you, anybody can vaccinate your puppy, but when times get tough and maybe illness arises and suddenly you're becoming uh, partners with your veterinarian in a process that may or may not end well, you need to know that you have somebody that you can trust a hundred percent and who you really feel has your pet's best interest in mind. You know, you may not be able, if you're looking for a vegan veterinarian, you may not be able to find that person. You may be able to, but you, but you may not. But I think most important is someone that is going to hear you out and support you and your pet during uh, troubled times. And I do have to say like most veterinarians I know, no, not every single one, but the vast majority of veterinarians I know really are very devoted to animal uh, welfare and well-being. And so it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very good and rewarding profession to be a part of because I know to a large extent um, people's priorities are right. Mm, that's so good to hear. I mean, I, I love our vet. My dog just had his second little mast cell uh, tumor removed last week. And I know there's a vegan vet here in New York City, but I just... I just don't feel that I should leave my, my doctor that I am so crazy about because he really cares. And, you know, that's important. People can go vegan, but people can't go caring. <laughs> you know, that has to come from within. So what if you do want your dog to be vegan and maybe your vet's never even heard of such a thing? How can a, a vegan client maybe educate the doctor a little bit? Well, I think, you know, you should be able to, you should be able to have this conversation with your vet and, you know, depending on, they should be open-minded enough to have the, have the discussion. Uh, if they, if they simply don't want to talk about it at all, well, that, that's not a great start. This is a dialogue that is something that is happening to a greater and greater extent as vegan living is, is becoming more and more popular all the time. People are asking a lot about what they can do with their pets. And there are certainly some vegetarian diets, uh, vegan diets really for dogs that are available mm -hmm. and well-made. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we especially have faith in the 
the veterinary lines made by companies that we sell and know and trust. And so there are several out there. A lot of times these, these kinds of diets are not being prescribed for ethical reasons. They're being prescribed for medical reasons, especially dogs with allergies, that sort of thing. So those diets are out there. The more controversial conversation is the one about a vegan diet for cats. And I know that there are some diets out there that are formulated for cats and people do feed them. My inquiry into this has suggested, especially amongst veterinary nutritionists, that because of the obligately carnivorous nature of cat nutrition, that it is really kind of challenging in the long term to feed a well-balanced vegan diet to a cat. There are certain needs that are just sort of not being met. So in light of that, I have a hard time sort of endorsing a vegan diet for a cat. The other piece of it that troubles me is I'm just not sure that we ought to be making those kinds of moral choices on behalf of a cat who left to its own devices would probably rather be eating mice and birds and frogs. And so that's a piece that we need to think about, you know, what does the cat, what does the cat really want to? And of course, these become very ethically murky um, areas to wade into because we know where the animals come from and how they die that go into uh, pet food. So it's uh, it's it's not black and white. It's it, they're not easy conversations to have, and it's not easy to come to conclusions. I am excited about the clean meat, the lab-grown meat, if for nobody else but the cats. Okay. Yeah, the cats and the people who say, no, I have to have animal protein. So it'll be a great day for those friends and neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> and for everybody's cats, this has been so enlightening, so uplifting, so much fun. I just can't begin to tell you how much I admire you, appreciate you. Everybody, if you're anywhere near Winnipeg, Manitoba, get yourself up there next summer for the Winnipeg Veg Fest. It is so much fun and so complete. If you could design the perfect veg fest, well, they've already done it. So mm -hmm. copy them. Uh, on Instagram, street.vets, Facebook, Jonas Watson. And everybody, be kind, be healthy, be blessed, be vegan. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.